Uh, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Judges. We're going to be in chapters 10, 11, and 12. And to read it all today, I've... Um, at, no, I'm just teasing. We're not going to do that to you. That's a lot, that's a lot of verses. Um, because it's such a long passage, what I want to do is I actually just want to read uh, chapter 10, 6 through 16, to set the stage for what Israel is feeling and what they're, where they're at so that we kind of carry that with us as we kind of skim over the, the chunk. And the reason why we're doing three chapters in one is it's a literary block, and we'll see why in just a moment. But I'm just going to pick up. I'm going to start reading. This is Judges chapter 10, verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. And they served the Baals and the Asherah, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook Yahweh and did not serve him. So the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel, and he sold him into the hand of the Philistines, into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that, the, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And Yahweh said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites, from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, the Amalekites, the Maonites, oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand? Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. And the people of Israel said to Yahweh, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served Yahweh. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, we ask today that your word would come alive to us, that your truth, your wisdom would guide us, and that as a family we would grow in our understanding of who you are, Lord, because of the gift of this passage this morning. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your presence here. Amen. So uh, let's go ahead and look at the structure of chapters 10, 11, and 12. And I've got it up in an outline. And again, it's so long, I had to divide it up into two columns on my slide. So I apologize if you can't read it all, but we'll walk through it. So basically what happens is in chapters 10, 11, and 12, we get the story of a guy called Jephthah. Everyone say Jephthah. Jephthah. And the interesting thing about Jephthah is he doesn't really show up until chapter 11, but it's all a part of his judge's story. But the first five verses of uh, chapter 10 are all about um, two judges um, named Tola and Jair. And they were two judges that ruled over Israel, and they're just brief synopses. And that's kind of the bookend to the beginning of this whole Jephthah saga. And then the final verses, eight, uh, chapter 12, 8 through 15, are about three judges and their brief one or two verse stories that kind of bookend the other end of Jephthah. And in the middle, we have five episodes, and we just read episode one um, 
which is chapter 10, 6 through 16, which is about the state of Israel. What's Israel going through? And then the remaining episodes deal with other things. So episode two, Jephthah is made ruler over the land. Uh, episode three, Jephthah has this long negotiation with the Amorites. He's like, hey, you probably shouldn't try and kill us. Probably. And they're like, we don't think so. It's more than that, but you get it. And then episode four is Jephthah makes a really foolish vow and then has victory over the Ammonites uh, and then completes his vow. Um, and then episode five, an, a civil war erupts between uh, Jephthah and Ephraim. And the interesting thing about these five episodes is that they're all marked by a dialogue. Each episode has a major dialogue that takes place. And so as we're going to be going through these five episodes, we're going to go through them one by one. Just keep an, just keep an ear out for what, what dialogue is happening. And so in this first one that we just read, the dialogue is between who? God and Israel. Israel and Yahweh. Exactly. Um, so I'm going to just briefly pull it up again. And I, I, because we don't have time to go through it all, I'm going to do a highlight reel, like ESPN. Here we go. It's March Madness season. Anyone playing March Madness? A few of us? Yeah, a few of us? Okay, great. It's a good time. Uh, This is verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. This is the refrain. This is the kickoff of the cycle of the judges that we've been talking about the whole series. Remember the cycle of the judges? Well, We'll get to that in a little bit. This is the kickoff. They're doing again what's evil in the sight of Yahweh. And listen to how many different gods they're serving this time around. They're serving the Baals, the Ashroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. That is, that's, that's the record so far in Judges. And, and how far they've gone into polytheism. How far away from Yahweh they've stepped. And this is exactly what Yahweh predicted what would happen, right? Right? In the beginning of the series, we're talking about, he's saying, hey, drive these people out from among you. Otherwise, you'll be entrapped by their gods. And here we are, 10 chapters in, and they're serving everybody and anybody they can come across except Yahweh. It's really sad. It's really sad. And then they get to this, this point where they cry out to Yahweh. They say, hey, we're suffering here. Please come save us. And this is really interesting. Actually, would you throw up, uh, Tammy, the next slide? This is, this is the judge's cycle. This is what we've been talking about the whole time. People do what's evil in the sight of Yahweh. Yahweh condemns them to being subject to foreign kings. Then people cry out to Yahweh for salvation. Then Yahweh hears, raises up a savior who conquers the enemies. And then this beautiful phrase, the land had rest. This is the cycle. Now, the way that these the way that these literary motifs often work in Scripture is they, remember, the Bible's meant to be read over and over and over and over again, and as you read it, you're meant to pick up on themes, on structures, on pieces, all these things as you read it again and again and again. So as we've been reading Judges again and again and again, this, this structure pops out at us. Could you actually throw the slide back up? Um, this structure pops out at us. But what's also really significant is when the structure gets broken. It's often telling of something to come, that the structure is broken. And this, this literary theme has been really helpful so far. But even in Gideon, we saw this literary theme kind of 
begin to strain a little bit. It doesn't hold up as well under Gideon. And now with Jephthah, we see it really fracturing and cracking. So what do we have in Jephthah? People are doing what's evil in the sight of the Lord. Do we have that one? Yes. They're rocking it. They're doing amazing. Then the Lord condemns them to being subject to foreign kings. Happens here, 18 years, Ammonites, Philistines, they're all there. Okay, so far so good. we're, We're tracking along, we've got it. Then we get to the third one. People cry out to Yahweh for salvation. They do that, but it's different this time. They cry out to Yahweh for salvation, and Yahweh doesn't say, I got you. Yahweh says, I'm, I'm done, actually. I saved you from the Egyptians, from the Amorites, from the Philistines, from the, from the Maonites. I don't, we don't even know who those are, but he did it. I saved you from all these people. I'm done. You go, okay, our pattern's not working anymore. That can't be good. Something's wrong here. And then, actually, and let, this is a good, uh, good opportunity to go to the next episode, we see that it breaks even more in this, fourth, in this fourth section where Yahweh hears and raises up a savior. So let's go ahead and look at the next section. So the next section, this is starting in verse 17, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just to get the picture. The Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped at Gilead, and the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man that will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now, Jephthah the Gilead was a mighty warrior. So this is the first thing we learn about this guy, okay? He's big, he's buff, he's strong, he's bad. He's a mighty warrior. But he was the son of the prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. When his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So the picture we're meant to have in our mind is this guy was born out of wedlock to a prostitute, but everyone knew who the father was, and so he was kind of in the house. But then the sons of the father get big and strong enough. They say, hey, we don't, you don't get any inheritance. You're not a part of this family. And they kick him out. We don't know what age this happens, but he gets kicked out. And then he goes to this other land and basically becomes a, like a mob boss or like a gang leader because he's this mighty warrior and he's got all these worthless fellows that collect around him. And, and then he gets a reputation for being big and bad and strong. Because it's, it happens, it, 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 that's his reputation so much that it says, after a time, verse 4, Ammonites made plans to war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they, said, they basically said, hey, okay, you're, you're this dude, you've got this like mafia gang boss thing going. We need some of that energy. <laughs> we, we, we need you to help us over here because we're not like you and we need that right now to save us. And he says, you guys drove me out. And they're like, okay, point to you, but we really need the help. And he says this, and so this is verse 9. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites as Yahweh gives them, oh, and Yahweh gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, Yahweh be the witness between us if we do not do as you say. 
So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before Yahweh at Mizpah. So here's, here's what's interesting here. A couple things. One, is Jephthah's motivation like, man, I just love Yahweh so much, I just want to save the people of Israel. I'm such a good guy. No. He's like, you drove me out. I'm not coming back to like, what if we made you the king? And he's like, keep talking. I'm interested. He's like, okay, great. Yeah. If, if, this, if I come back and I fight for you and we beat the Ammonites, I'll be the leader. And they're like, that sounds good. And then here's the key phrase. And the people made him head and leader over them. This is the first time from our literary structure, we don't see the phrase, and Yahweh raised up. Who made him leader? The people. So again, we're, we're seeing a crack in our pattern, now we just see it ripped apart. And by the way, if we, could we go back to, oh, here's the pattern, great. We don't see the phrase, the land rests, anymore in the rest of the book. It's gone. The pattern has been obliterated. No more in the rest of the book of Judges do we see the phrase, and the land had rest. Wow, what a great Sunday. Let's go to the next episode. Um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to belabor this episode. This is um, 12 through 28. This is the long negotiation that Jephthah has um, with the Ammonites, but I am just going to read one verse. Uh, it's the final one. It just, it, it sums up the whole thing. This is verse 27 of chapter 11. This is Jephthah speaking to the Ammonites. I, therefore, have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. Yahweh, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the word of Jephthah that he sent to him. So something interesting to know is that although... It doesn't say Yahweh raised him up. It says the people raised him up. It says the people appointed him. He's still invoking the name of Yahweh. He's still saying to the Gileadites, Yahweh decide between us. He's saying to the king of Ammon, Yahweh is going to be the judge between us here. So just something interesting to know. Okay, so let's go to the next episode. This is episode three now. Oh, no, sorry, episode four. Uh, I'm going to read... Verse 29, briefly. The spirit of Yahweh was upon Jephthah. This is the first action of Yahweh that we have seen since he said, I'm not going to do anything. Now, at the end of the, the passage that I read, right at the beginning, it said, the Lord grew impatient over the misery of Israel. So you get the hint that out of pity, out of love, he might do something, but he hasn't done anything yet. Here it says, the spirit of Yahweh was upon Jephthah. And this is the language that we see with the other judges. The spirit of the Lord comes upon them and uses in that time to either defeat the enemies or prophesy or something along those lines. Comes upon Jephthah. And so you go, great, he's going to win. This is where we as readers go, he's got it in the bag. He passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. Great. Everything's going great. 
Then, verse 30, And Jephthah made a vow to Yahweh and said, If you give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be Yahweh's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So, the story goes on. He crosses over to the Ammonites and fights against them, and Yahweh gave them into his hand, which this wasn't a sure thing when he made the deal to become the leader. He said, if Yahweh does this, can I be the leader? And they're like, that sounds great. So here, it happens. Yahweh delivers the Ammonites into his hand. And he struck them, and then it goes on. I'm going to read, skip the battle. They win. Verse 34. And Jephthah came home to his house at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to Yahweh, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to Yahweh. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. And now what Yahweh has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done to me. Leave me alone for two months that I may go up to the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of the two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. This is just awful. It's just awful. The spirit of Yahweh has come upon him. You got to notice something like that, right? Something like you have that's an experience. And he should know, we've, we've got this in the bag. We're going to win this battle. But instead, he turns to Yahweh and says, hey, I'll make a deal with you now. This is the dialogue of the section. I'll make a deal with you. Will you give me victory if I just sacrifice whatever comes out of my house first to greet me? We don't hear an answer back from God, actually. That's just him making a vow to Yahweh. We don't see Yahweh speaking to Jephthah at all. He just makes his vow. And sure enough, he wins the day. But the Spirit of the Lord had already come upon him before he made this vow. The day was already, the victory was already had. There's no need to do this. And he comes home, and his only child comes out the doors. And he weeps and cries out, and she weeps. And then they, they go through with it. Now, I, I just want to say really clearly about how Yahweh feels about child sacrifice. This is Jeremiah 19.5. They have built places here for worship of the God of Baal, so that they could sacrifice their children as burnt offerings to him in the fire. 
Such sacrifices are something I never commanded them to make. They are something I never told them to do. Indeed, such a thing never even entered my mind. Child sacrifice is not the way of Yahweh. Never has been, never will be. There's one recorded instance where he asks for child sacrifice and keeps the hand away. This is not the way of Yahweh. This is the way of the people in the land of Canaan. This is the way to worship Canaanite gods. Hmm. I'm going to keep going with the episode, uh, with the next episode here. This is... um, I'm going to read chapter 12, 1. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? These are the same people that said the same thing to Gideon, by the way. They're like, hey, we want, we want to fight. I'm like, okay. Of course, they do this after the battle. We will burn, he, why did you cross over to fight the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And then I saw you would not save me. I took my life in my hand and crossed over to the Ammonites, and Yahweh gave them to my hand. Look at him. He's still giving credit to Yahweh. Why then have you come up this day to fight me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. They're fighting over pride, basically. Ego? Agenda? And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, they said, okay, say Shibboleth. And he said Sibboleth for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel for six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his home in Gilead. And when we reach this point, the, the resounding echo of silence that we do not hear the phrase, and the land had rest for 40 years or whatever, is ringing in our ears. You know when silence is loud? This silence is screaming. Man, he was a judge for six years. He sacrificed his only daughter, his only child. And then right after that, there was a civil war and 42,000 Israelites were killed. What a mess. What a mess. Did you guys notice all the dialogues? All the conversations that were had? Each episode? Would you go to the next slide, Tammy? There's a guy, his name is um, Gary, or Barry Webb, and he is like the judge's guy. I've got my, my favorite commentary that I go to first. And I always just check out what it says before I kind of dive into other commentaries deeper. And I go to that commentary, and I already pulled out some other commentaries, and like, people are like, oh, all the best one, you gotta get web, you gotta get web, you gotta get web. I'm like, all right, I'll get, I'll get web. And then uh, I show up in my favorite commentary, and they pull the best 
the best people for each section of the Bible, and it's Webb again. So I'm like, okay, Webb is the judge's guy. Here's what he says about this section of the story. At one level, of course, the story is simply an account of how the Lord used Jephthah to save Israel from the Ammonites. But the dialogues point to a deeper level of meaning than this. Every dialogue is essentially an exercise in negotiation. Every dialogue is essentially an exercise in negotiation. And this is true even of Israel's repentance in the first episode and Jephthah's vow in the crucial fourth. At its deepest level, the story of Jephthah is about the tragic consequences that follow when religion degenerates into bargaining with God. It shows us how deeply the Israelites of Jephthah's day, including Jephthah himself, had begun to misconstrue their relationship with God. Indeed, it was only because of the Lord's great mercies that they were not left to the fate they so richly deserved. Let's think about Israel in this moment. They were fallen away from Yahweh, worshiping literally every god they could come across, possibly. They're negotiating with Yahweh, but then they're also being obedient. They're putting away their idols from among them and saying, okay, we serve Yahweh now. Do whatever you want to do. And then even though they're being obedient and they're putting away their idols, then they don't wait for Yahweh to save them. Then they turn and grab a local mob boss and say, hey, you save us. And God in his graciousness says, okay, and comes upon him and saves the day. And then we've got Jephthah. We've got this guy who's raised as an outsider, even in his own home. He's, he's exiled from his family. Then he's made a leader of Israel, but he's really in it for the glory, his own glory and his own leadership. The spirit, then the Spirit comes upon him, but then he makes a foolish vow, and then he follows through on a foolish vow that he should never have made in the first place, and he kills his daughter. But he saves Israel from the Ammonites. Then he kills 42,000 Ephraimites. You know what's so crazy about that? They were so gung-ho about killing Ephraimites that they, they were checking their accent. They're like, oh, what's a word? What's a word that an Ephraimite can't say? Oh, they can't say shibboleth. They, don't, they, don't, they can't do the shh. They just say sss. So let, let's just, let's make that our passcode. Say shibboleth. Sibboleth. We found one. Let's, let's take him and kill him. This is exactly what Yahweh was warning Israel about when he said, drive them out from among you. Have nothing to do with them. Or their gods will become your gods and you will become like them. And here we are, 10 chapters in, and what are we seeing? What aspects of Canaanite culture are we seeing in the story? Debauchery, broken sexual practices, constant conflict and violence, child sacrifice. Suddenly, all these things that were true of the people of Canaan 
are now true of the people of Yahweh. And I think this is really, I think this is really the most damning part about the whole, this whole section is seeing how the influence of the culture corrupted the people of Yahweh so much to a point that it corrupted the relationship that the people have with Yahweh. To where the judge treats Yahweh the same way you would treat a Canaanite God. Says, if you give me this battle, I will sacrifice whatever comes out of my home first. I mean, I've, here's the things that have greeted me first when I come home in my life. A dog, like my dog. My kids, my wife, my parents. It's not like he had no idea that this was a possibility. He was making a deal like you would with a Canaanite God. I will give you something so deep and valuable to me so that you will do something else for me. And he's treating Yahweh like you treat a Canaanite God. And I think that's something that we are not immune to here in the West, here in the States. I don't think I'm so far above and out of culture that I never let it influence my relationship with God. um, We have an illusion here in the West, in the States in particular, that life is fair. We, we, We operate that way. We think, hey, if I do X, Y, and Z, I'm going to get this outcome. If I work hard at school, I'm going to get good grades. If I get good grades, I'll get into a good college. If I get into a good college, I'll get a good job. And if I get a good job, I'll make lots of money. money. And if I have lots of money, then I can find my spouse, my house, the kids, the car, and the dog. And then I'm going to do that job and make lots of money until I can retire. Oh, and then when I retire, I'm going to play golf. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to collect seashells. I'm going to go and do all the things that I've always wanted to do. We, we all know the formula. We all know the formula. But to quote one of the best products of Hollywood of all time, life's not fair, highness. Anyone who says different is selling something. We bring this same mentality to Jesus, to the church. Hey God, listen, I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to go to church. I'll even drag my kids to church. I'll do all these things for you. And nothing bad better ever happen to me. And if it does, my finger is ready to go. We had a deal. We had a deal. Has negotiation with God slipped into your heart at all? I know it hasn't mine. 
What if it's, what if it's nothing so, so evil as all that? What if it's something like, I'm going I'm to try and do good things. I'm going to read my Bible today. I'm even going to pray because maybe I'm still trying to earn God's love. Maybe I'm still trying to buy it off of my own merit because I'm good enough. I'm strong enough. I can do it enough. And just this last week, I've just been repenting of all that and praying, Lord, help me think of you because of your scriptures and because of who you are, not because of who I want you to be or who I'm being influenced to think that you are. Reveal yourself to me, please, Jesus. I can do no other. I need you. I need you. You know, when we started this series, or not when we started, a couple weeks ago, we talked about Gideon. And God calls Gideon the mighty man of valor. We talked about our own identity and who we are. And we talked about what lies are we even believing about ourselves that aren't true of us. Today, we're, we're flipping the, the, the lens and we're looking up and we're saying, what lies about God am I believing? Who do I believe God to be? What do I believe him to do? What's his character? How does he interact with me? Do I need to keep doing all these things to earn his love and favor? Or do I just have them? And if I just have them, what do I do with that? Or I, or, or I, or I sin and I screw up and I say, okay, I need, to, I need to stay away from church or I need to stay away from my community. I, need to, I can't pray right now. I screwed up. I put myself in, in like time out with God. Is that a me thing or is that a God thing? It's a me thing. That's a me thing. By the way, this, this question, what lies about God am I believing? This isn't like a, hey, let's ponder this for 10 minutes and then go home. This is a let your soul marinate in this question. In humility. In humility. Say, Lord, help me. Help me a sinner. I need to know. Help me understand. Because by the way, this is how the enemy works. The enemy is full of lies. That's why there's so many false narratives about our own identity that we latch onto and hold onto and say, well, I'm just that way. This is just me. This is how I am. It's the enemy at work. How much more do you think the enemy is trying to lie to us about who our father is? And this was what Jephthah was doing. Jephthah was approaching Yahweh believing Yahweh to be like these other gods, requiring sacrifice. But do you know what Hosea 6, 6 says? For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God is saying, do you know what I want more than all of this negotiation and back and forth? I want you to know me. And I want you to love me. 
And it's really, it, I've been so humbled this last week thinking about how much negotiation, how much transaction has entered my relationship with God. And by the way, this is so awkward. When there's love in the relationship, transaction just feels weird. It just feels weird. Like imagine like I come back in from taking out the trash and Jill's like, hey babe, here you go. It's like $5. Thank, thank you? We have a shared bank account. She's like, I know. <laughs> or like I'm making dinner and she's like, ooh, nice, $20. It's just weird. It's just weird. We don't do transaction in love. We do love. Unless you're siblings. Then I tell you what, man. <laughs> transaction is free game. <laughs> But in love, we pursue. We let ourselves be caught. We surrender. We exult. We love deeply and passionately and richly. Because that's what we were created for by a God who is triune and is full of love. Made us in his image to be beings of love. And then we step out these doors and we bring our plastic and our cash and we make the world conform to our will. And we do that day after day after day after day after day after day. And then we come and we kneel in the morning. We say, Lord, here I am. Do you have anything to say? You're good? Okay, I'm good too. Carry on. A.W. Tozer is this incredible theologian. He has this amazing quote. He says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think of God, when we consider the creator, is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God? Do you have, is it an angry father waiting to punish? Is it, a, is it a far and distant manager? Is it a close, is he a close companion? A friend? A lover? What comes to mind when you think about God? And then the question that I think immediately follows, right, is what is influencing my perspective of God? Is it the Holy Scriptures? Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it me walking with Jesus day in and day out in relationship? Or is it something more that I can control where if I'm good enough, I can be loved? I don't know what the answer is for you. All I know is this has been a rough week for me. <laughs> These questions to consider are so powerful because they help us find more and more of who Jesus is. And I just, I'm done letting American consumerism and culture bring any limits on my relationship with Jesus, on my prayers, on my passionate pursuit of the King. I'm, I'm just, I'm tired of it. I'm sick of it. 
And that's what Jephthah did. He let the local culture, the local gods, influence his perception of the creator. And it ended in utter disaster. I want to move away from negotiation and towards love. And by the way, the takeaway from the sermon, I hope, please don't take this away as like, oh, look how far culture has gone from God. We need to save America. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is I need to look into my own heart because it doesn't matter what country you're in. What matters is that each of our hearts needs to be realigned with the one who made us and genuinely believe the truth of the gospel, that you are the beloved, not because you did anything, but because he loves you. Period. That's it. He loves you. I've got three questions I'd like us to consider here this week. If you want to write them down, that's great. Um, What comes to mind when you think of God? And just be honest with yourself. This isn't a competition. No one's going to check your answers. But if we're not honest with ourselves, we're not going to make any progress. What comes to mind when you think of God? Second question. What what can you do to know him more? Relationships die without communication. This is just reality. Are you communicating with Jesus, with your Savior, regularly, daily, moment by moment? Where are you at? What does it mean to know Jesus more, and how can you go about doing it? And finally, if you have time, if you haven't been beaten up enough by the first two, in what ways have you noticed culture influencing your relationship with Jesus? Jephthah never asked these questions. And disaster came upon Israel and his family because of it. And that's the effect that sin has. And that's the hope and the joy of the enemy is to get us to believe lies about ourselves and about our God. And we're, we're just not going to allow, we're not going to accept that. We're going to say, no, I'm going to pursue Jesus. That's it pursuing Jesus today. There was at the other church I used to work at for a long time. Um, there was a guy who was a greeter, had this jean jacket on, and on the package just said, not today, Satan. <laughs> I was like, are we okay with that? We like that? Are we, okay, maybe we just don't want to have the conversation. Okay, maybe we like it. I don't know. That's what we get to do. We get to pursue Jesus. Welcome to church. That's it. You just, what is the sermon about today? Pursue Jesus. That's it. This could have been five minutes. But I think and I hope that the story of Jephthah rings in your soul this week like it's been ringing in mine as a warning, as a siren, and as a call to action to pursue Jesus and pursue love. Would you stand with me? Lord, we are so sure of the fact that we do not have it all figured out. But we are equally sure 
that we can turn to you wherever we're at. Lord, help us pursue you above all else. Help you be the center of our affections. May our knowledge of you stem from the work that you have done in the scriptures and in your people and in our lives. May we know you, Jesus, not as a figment of our imagination, not as a far off God, but as God with us here and now. Lord, we believe and help, help us in our unbelief. We love you, Jesus. We love you. And right now, we want to lift our hands, we want to lift our voices, we want to lift our heads and worship to you, the creator of all things, and give you the glory that only you deserve. Because we love you. Because we love you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.